When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is David Feingold, your host for the Future of Higher Education podcast and the president of Chatham University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm here today with Father Steve Katsouris, who is a Jesuit priest and the founder of Arupe College at Loyola University, Chicago, as well as the president and CEO of the Come to Believe Network. Steve is also the author of Come to Believe, How Jesuits Are Reinventing Education Again. Steve, it's great to have you on the podcast. David, so nice meeting you, and thank you for the invitation to be with you this morning. Uh, would you mind starting by just sharing a little bit about your own upbringing? Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? Sure. So my family has roots in New York, um, and you know, my father is uh, uh, is deceased. He um, uh, Greek background. Like many Greek men of his generation, he was involved in the restaurant business, in diners. And uh, 24-7, 364, we were closed on Christmas. Otherwise, we were always open. And um, he was very successful with a diner in um, Washington, D.C., where I grew up and went to high school and college. Um, it was called Nick's Grill, and he was Nick. And it was a very diverse community, and this was in the 60s and 70s, and diverse was not really part of anyone's active vocabulary. But, um, you know, white-collar uh, professionals, neighborhood folks, grandparents, kids after school, uh, young families, Greek people making spanakopita in the kitchen, uh, black servers working the floor, and my father was kind of the presider of all of that. I think, well, you know, first of all, I think the first sentence that I could sound out was, it is our pleasure to serve you, because it was emblazoned on every coffee cup at Nick's Grill. Um, and I think that, that service ethos of my father and his you know, sense of customer service, and really his sense of community, of uh, people belonging somewhere and breaking bread together, you know, uh, was was very, very influential for me as a young person and into my career. So, uh, so yeah, so that's a little bit of, of my, my origin story. 
Great. And, and where did you go to school in the D.C. area and then to college? Yeah, so I went to Catholic uh, elementary and high schools. Very grateful for those experiences. Um, and then I ended up at the University of Maryland in College Park, which was extraordinary because it was not a Catholic um, uh, uh, milieu. And uh, I was ready for something different, something bigger. Uh, and uh, back to my father, I majored in English. My father said, Steve, you speak English. Why are you majoring in English? <laughs> uh, I was the first one in my family to go to college. And um, that was those, those were very important years for me, uh, a much bigger world. Um, at that time, also, I was... Uh, involved in service work. I was involved with an organization in Washington called the Community for Creative Nonviolence. And um, through that organization, I met people a few years older than I who were post-college working in an organization called the Jesuit Volunteer Corps, or JVC. And it was a year of service um, and living in community with other people and uh, working with marginalized folks around the country. So I applied and um, uh, that got me back to New York uh, and uh, to Covenant House in Times Square. So again, one more note about my father. I said, you know, I'm doing JVC. Before I could explain that JVC stood for Jesuit Volunteer Corps, he said, JVC, he said, you're an English major. You know nothing about recording materials. I mean, you don't know <laughs> JVC. What is this? So uh, nothing about stereos. Anyway, um, uh, and that's really how my, my affiliation with the Jesuits began. And so was it that that year of service, did that convince you that you had a calling to become a priest and let, led you into the priesthood? Or? Not really. I have to say that I was a little bit of a slow learner. Um, you know, one of the things that struck me during that year was a talk that I attended given by a fellow who turned to be a great friend, uh, Father Dean Brackley. Dean was a Jesuit, was a community organizer in the Bronx. He eventually worked for many, many years after the Jesuits were assassinated in El Salvador in 1989. He went to San Salvador to our university there to replace them. So Dean, at this you know presentation he gave in Philadelphia, uh, and I attended, was he talked about um, Jesuit or Ignatian spirituality, Ignatian after St. Ignatius Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits. And it was really based in, grounded in uh, basic Jesuit principles, finding God in all things, in the here and the now, in people around us, in our life, in our life situations, and particularly in people on the margins. And I remember thinking, this really speaks to me. Um, after my year of JVC, I worked at a, a Jesuit school on the Lower East Side of Manhattan called Nativity. And um, Nativity was uh, a school designed for um, middle schoolers in District 1, which was really underserving um, uh you know, students of color, mostly Puerto Rican, and then was Dominican, and then was Mexican. And, um, you know, uh, those were very formative years for me. I found my my passion for education, um, loved being a classroom teacher, loved really entering the lives of these people and living on the Lower East Side, and met more and more Jesuits. So, um, you know, between my growing participation, if you will, in Ignatian spirituality, um, uh, a growing interior life, and feeling like God was inviting me to at least explore this, I thought I should get this out of my system. You know, so let me apply to the Jesuits. I'll try it. 
and then I'll be done with it and I can get on with my life. Well, you know, I entered the Jesuits in August of 1987. And, you know, 34 years later, uh, here I am. Still getting it out of your system. <laughs> Trying. <laughs> Um, so, so I think after you you went and 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 uh, completed uh, your training for the priesthood, you you ended up running uh, a high school in New York, going back to those roots and and doing that. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So uh, I um, worked uh, as president of Loyola School uh, on uh, Park Avenue and Eighty uh, Third Street. Uh, again, lessons from my father. That was an extraordinary community. Uh, and, you know, it was an honor and a joy to be, um, in some ways, a presider in that, in that community during my years there. Um, and, you know, it helped me, I was in my 40s then, uh, it helped me to sort of understand the secondary ed student and what makes um, her or him tick, uh, what are the motivators. Uh, also, it helped me to understand uh, faculty and curriculum and to be able to support uh, uh, my colleagues was was also a real, a real honor. You know, in some ways, Loyola was uh, a turnaround, and so uh, I learned a lot about building a team. And um, I was blessed with uh, an extraordinary principal, CFO, advancement officer, as well as the faculty and staff. And Loyola was a repositioning. We honored what Loyola was. It was a school that was over 100 years old. But we also made it more a presence on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, where there are so many wonderful independent schools for families to choose from. And so we played up our differentiator, which was the Jesuit identity, uh, and uh, along with the small, what the Jesuits call cura personalis, care for the whole person. And, um, you know, uh, the, the school really began to thrive. We survived 2008. And when I moved on into higher ed in 2011, um, you know, I was just so grateful for that experience. And that's a community that's still very important to me. And I'm curious, because I would guess in that location, Park Avenue, in the 80s is, is one of the wealthiest parts of New York. As you mentioned, a lot of the elite prep schools right in those blocks, it seemed would seem a very different student body you'd be attracting than what had sort of called you into this, the work you'd been doing at in the year of service and on the Lower East Side. Um, was that something where you were sent there as by the Jesuits, or was that a choice you had made to, to, to work in that different environment? Well, sure. You know, um, in the Jesuits, we always talk about uh, the individual Jesuit discerns, the superior discerns, the superior decides. <laughs> but uh, it was a happy discernment and a happy decision for me. Um, one of my great desires was to see um, more students from schools like Nativity, the school that I worked at on the Lower East Side. And in between the uh, Nativity and Loyola, I was part of a team that founded another Nativity model school in Harlem. So, you know, um, I um, love fundraising. I'm a pretty 
you know, fearless fundraiser. And so I was very interested in creating scholarship opportunities and um, building the endowment so that more students from those nativity schools could attend Loyola. Again, these are small schools with great communities. So it was very satisfying when a student from the school in Harlem ended up being the student president uh, at Loyola School. And, uh, you know, it was um, an experiment, if you will, that worked. You know, here was the best of New York, people coming from different um, boroughs, different neighborhoods, different socioeconomic backgrounds, uh, different, you know, students with families with different educational levels. And yet this community was very cohesive and, and very thick and rich and, and life-giving. That's, that's great to see the, the two coming together. So given your success you were having in the K through 12 world, what was it that led you to go get your doctorate at Columbia and to make the transition into higher education? Sure. So I um, have been on a lot of boards of trustees through for over the last 25 years. Um, you know, as a Catholic priest, as a Jesuit, I'm um, very influenced by the documents of Vatican II, uh, when the Catholic Church was growing in its self-understanding in the 1960s. And one of those documents uh, talks about and celebrates the role of lay people, not priests, not nuns, not brothers, but lay women and men and their leadership of Catholic organizations. And I saw that borne out in the boardroom where it was predominantly uh, non-priests, non-Jesuits, non-religious, who were leading these institutions. Um, I've always been interested in organizational leadership, and so I focused uh, at Columbia, um, a teacher's college, on the roles of of boards for -for not-for-profits. And my dissertation was the characteristics of high-performing boards of trustees. And so you know, high-performing boards, they do exist. And, uh, and I, was, I was very influenced by uh, the research of Dick Chait at, at Harvard and his colleagues, um, uh, Barbara Taylor and Tom Holland. So I adapted um, their work for um, boards, for 34 boards that I studied and came up with, you know, all right, high-performing boards, correlation to high-performing schools. And we also identified what would be the key performance indicators for successful um, secondary schools. And um, that work continues to be a part of who I am. I'm on five boards right now. And, um, you know, obviously with the vow of poverty, I'm not um, a major donor on any of these boards. But if I can support the president, uh, the board chair, and in terms of good governance and best practices, then that's my contribution to those boards. And so after you completed that, you, you joined one of the, the leading Jesuit institutes uh, institutions of higher ed, the University of San Francisco, and, and you had some success there. Can, can you tell us in, in that journey, what when did the idea of a, creating a Rupe College come from? And, and did you look at other models or h- how did that come about? Sure. Yeah, USF, those were wonderful years and a great intro to higher ed for me. I was the um, director of the Institute for Catholic Educational Leadership. And so I had uh, just the pleasure to create curriculum, to collaborate with other faculty members, to teach courses, but also having been you know, uh, a successful uh, uh, leader in a Catholic educational institution, 
you know, I, I felt like I was influencing the next generation of, of women and men who were interested in that as a career path, that as a, as a calling. Um, you know, I uh, created summer institutes in the training of boards. So I brought my uh, dissertation research uh, and that was a real differentiator for, for USF in terms of having that program. Um, I loved uh, the Bay Area. Uh, you know, the future was being invented there and still is in so many ways. Um, Jesuit Mike Garanzini, Mike was the president of Loyola University, reached out to me about three years into my time at USF and said, I think I have something for you. And um he said, it's risky, but it's worth it. So I was on a, a, a plane where the Wi-Fi actually worked. And so I was <laughs> reading this email and, um, you know, he's describing, you know, uh, a two-year college um, for Pell-eligible students who are first-gen, whose, you know, GPAs in high school would be 2.5, 2.7, 2.8. 2 and I thought, oh God, what am I doing? This sounds like, and it's a startup. And I have already, I'd already done the startup in Harlem when I was a younger man. I thought, hmm, I'm in my fifties now. Can I really take this on? But by the time the plane landed, I thought, this is exactly what we ought to be doing as Jesuits. You know, this is so, this so aligns with our language about our commitment to social justice, about uh, our Pope Francis's language, about accompanying uh, people on the margins and people, you know, in this case, who are in the margins of higher education. So, um, you know, I flew to Chicago um, and, you know, I was coming from San Francisco, so I was wearing a little windbreaker. It was snowing when I got out of the plane at O'Hare. And I thought, oh, God, I'm leaving behind weather and wine for, for Chicago. Uh, and uh, But, you know, I loved it. And um, so that summer we were working on the curriculum. I have a background in philosophy as well. And so we were designing those courses um, and uh, working with the team that Mike had assembled uh, to begin to explore the feasibility of a two-year college at um, Loyola University of Chicago. And I began my work there full-time in September of 2014. Um, and, you know, we opened, we enrolled the first class and they were, in ori- they were at our orientation program the following July. So basically, it was um, quite a, a, a sprint for the next 10 months to get, you know, um, a board assembled and uh, faculty hired and um, funds to be raised and the curriculum to be approved by the Higher Ed um, uh, Learning Commission and, um, you know, the facilities up and running. So uh, it was uh, it was an active time. And, and can you say a little more in terms of the model? It's unusual um, for a four-year institution, a well-established one, to seek to create a, a two-year college within it. Um, what, what was the thinking um, behind that original email, and why, why create a separate institution to achieve this objective within there, as opposed to either you know the straight four-year model or what a lot do, which is partnering with two-year colleges, you know, that, that are, are, are nearby. At the time, we were very aware that the retention and completion rates in the two-year colleges in the Chicago area were, were low. Uh, so it was a, an attempt to address that need. More importantly, I think we were recognizing that institutions like Loyola, competitive, selective, well-established universities, were missing out on a population. And um, so this was an opportunity to um, 
to address that and to welcome more students. Uh, further, you know, that demographic, first gen, um, you know, uh, it's been consistently 96% students of color. Um, Pell eligible. When I arrived, we were att uh, attracting and enrolling a lot of undocumented students. They never considered a school like Loyola. It was a school for white people in their imaginations. It was a school um, that was too wealthy for them. It was for wealthy people. So that was not for them. And so early on, like <laughs> immediately, I was um, visiting uh, Chicago public high schools, charter schools, and Catholic high schools. And I remember November of 2014, I had an open house at Loyola, you know, to roll out the model. Uh, and we invited administrators from public, charter, Catholic high schools. I thought I might have 15, 20 people attending. I had over 100 people attend. And um, they saw this as a great option for um, a student population, subpopulation in their schools who often did not have many very good options. And, you know, Loyola has uh, a strong brand nationally, certainly a very robust brand uh, identity in Chicago. So the fact that Loyola was doing it was giving it a lot of credibility, even though no one knew who or what Arupe, you know, was, but it was about Loyola. And so um, regarding the two-year piece, so yes, um, I don't think we realized at the time, I learned this pretty quickly, um, that um, our students, by and large, really um, want to go on and get a four-year degree. But for lots of different reasons, you know, under preparation in high school, not the, the best um, high school placement programs in their schools, um, you know, uh, financial, certainly, first and foremost, um, and not being able to navigate because of the first ones in their families uh, to, to um, look at, consider um, higher ed. This was a bridge program. And so it was an opportunity for these young students and uh, young uh, women and men in Chicago to um, try uh, um, undergrad, to see if they belonged, to see if they found community. So again, uh, that theme of, uh, of community and belonging, which has been you know, an anchor throughout my personal and professional um, lives, uh, became critical critical for the success of Arupe College and for getting more and more of our students across the finish line. And then to say, okay, I like statistics. I love philosophy. This professor really transformed the way that I think about learning. I love being in a community of learners. Um, I want to continue at Loyola, or um, I'll look at the state system in Illinois, or um, I like the Jesuits, and I maybe I'll go to Georgetown, or Loyola Marymount, or Regis in Denver, or Marquette, um, and or Loyola in Baltimore. So um, uh, that's what happened very quickly. I was laser focused on retention that first class, you know, and so. Um, <laughs> the average um, retention rate at that time in 2014, 2015 for the Association of Jesuit Colleges and Universities, 27, you know, Jesuit schools around the country was around 85% from first year to second year students. So we came in at 82%. Loyola freshman that year was 80%, and which was an off year. Loyola is a very strong institution. But um, I remember saying to my fellow deans, I said, listen, if I can help you. 
Um, <laughs> then uh, if, if our students and I can can help you with your numbers, then by all means, we're at your service. <laughs> that was Great very to aggravating. be able to do. Yes. Um, so, so I'm curious. You know, there's a lot to do in that 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 foundation year that you were putting together. Did you have other models you looked at around the country that served as inspiration for what you were trying to do? My sense is that many of the elements that you had, not just the student population you were serving, but the wraparound student support, the goal of graduating debt-free, it bears a lot of resemblance to some of the TRIO programs that I've seen in community colleges. I, I, I was wondering, did you see other four years or two years that, that you were able to draw on for putting together your you know, I spent a lot of time with other educators around the country, Jesuit, non-Jesuit, from Jesuit institutions or not, but um, institutions that I, I kind of targeted schools that had success in retaining and graduating first-gen students of color who were Pell eligible and what were some of their best practices. And I recognized very quickly that even though you know, the financial model of Arupe allowed students to attend the college for, you know, uh, very little, if anything, you know, so, but we, we needed other support services. We needed to address mental health. We needed to address food insecurity. We need to, uh, needed to address, address technology um, uh, concerns. We needed to help students, um, transition from the two-year college to a four-year. We needed to uh, create um, job opportunities for students. And so, you know, I was able to draw from um, various areas of the larger university, from career services, from advancement, from um, the Wellness Center, to put together a team. In some cases, we relied on the services of the larger university. In others, um, you know, we created kind of our own system. The mental health piece and also um, the academic support piece, what we found early on with those students was if we were to say, oh, you know, go to the writing center at the university or go to the, you know, math lab, these were students who were not certain that they belonged. And um, to be uh, uh, directed to the writing center, for example, for them was confirmation that, yes, you don't belong. Whereas another student with another kind of uh, background would say, oh, where's my coach? Oh, I love academic coaches. I have one in high school. You know, sign me up. Uh, for these students, things were very tentative. So it was really my colleagues, uh, you know, I'm so blessed with, um, you know, uh, the, the team at Arupe. We put together uh, the original, and they're still there, the six faculty members who began with us. They said, you know, I think it's more about peer tutoring. And so we, re we created the writing fellows and the math fellows. All of a sudden, the stigma disappeared because, oh, I went to high school with her. Oh, I ride the L with him. Oh, you know, um, we had lunch to, to, uh, together today. So it became much more accessible and not uh, a stigmatizing activity. So I, in answer to your question, it was a lot of looking at uh, and talking with other uh, folks who worked with this population. You know, quite frankly, I have to say, drawing from that nativity model as well, you know? Um, obviously, very different population, uh, middle schoolers, uh, but um, some of those uh, support systems that worked so well there, you know, we adapted for um, post-secondary ed folks, but, you know, uh, it, it worked. And then, you know, again, not to be one-note Johnny, but the focus on community, building community. 
and really stressing, we were influenced very much by research by David Yeager at UT Austin. I had him work with our faculty about creating a culture of a belonging growth mindset. Also the research of Jackie Gerstein on the asset versus the deficit narratives. So um, for example, early on, well, I was the designer of the uh, interview protocol. All, all applicants for um, Arupe were interviewed um, for admission. And so, you know, uh, my design was to ask the um, applicant, tell us about an obstacle that you experienced. Uh, what was it? What did you do about it? Did someone help you? Did you ask someone for help? Um, you know, what did you learn from it? If your younger sibling was going through it, what would you, how would you advise? And so where I was looking for, you know, grit and persistence and self-advocacy, all of those things. Great. The presumption, though, of course, was that you have an obstacle. You know, you're from the south side of the west side of Chicago. You must have an obstacle. You're first gen, you're Pell eligible, you're undocumented, you're a person of color. What's your obstacle? That's the deficit narrative. So instead, we flipped that to, we couldn't do this in the first year, but shortly thereafter, we would say, look, Arupe is an extraordinary community. And you're seeing that in the students who are, you know, you've talked with or who are on the student panel or giving you tours. Um, we, just looking at your application, we believe that um, you have uh, gifts and talents that could make an already strong community even stronger. So tell us about what's something that you're good at or something that you perceive that, you know, is a gift or talent that could help, you know, build community or contribute to our community that flips it. It's the asset narrative. So all so some uh, these theorists, as well as um, practitioners, uh, were, were very important. James Heckman, Camille Farrington, local at the University of Chicago, their research also was, was very important, as was Paul Tuff's um, writings and, you know, how children succeed. So yep. that's great. Um, can you say a little more about uh, that founding team? You mentioned the six faculty who are still there. Were they people who were already on the faculty at Loyola? Were they folks that you went out and hired for this specific purpose? The six uh, faculty members were, um, some of them had some affiliation with Loyola. They had been adjuncting there. They had PhDs from Loyola. But no, this is a separate, the model is it's a separate faculty. And so, um, you know, the first person I hired I was teaching here in New York at LaGuardia Community College. So she had that two-year college experience. Another one also had been um, teaching at another community college. Um, some had service experiences like I did with the Jesuit Volunteer Corps or other similar volunteer experiences. Um, you know, all of them were on fire about the passion, about, with passion about the, um, about the mission. You know, to hear about the opportunity to work with this demographic was so appealing. And that was true in subsequent years, you know, as we grew, you know, the first class was 159 students, and then the next class was 187. And so we were up to 300, 350 students pre-COVID, uh, which was around the time that I was moving on to start the the national network. Um you know, uh, we had no problem finding very committed, talented uh, folks with terminal degrees. Fifty uh, percent of the faculty are people of color, uh, and um, part of our innovation 
was that the faculty served as um, advisors. And so, you know, um, I think that academic advising work is often is so heroic and often so uh, challenging because an advisor, particularly in two-year colleges here in New York and in Chicago, they have hundreds of advisees. And just trying to keep track of their advisees is like mission impossible. At Arupe, we designed it so, um, you know, you're a faculty member, you have 20 to 25 advisees, and you follow the student from orientation until um, exmission, until they go on to their four-year or onto the workforce, or whatever is next for them. Uh, those relationships are very robust, very meaningful, and advisors, and I, for that matter, are still in touch with a lot of our graduates. So, um, and I think that that advising dimension also was was a, a really appealing um, uh, characteristic of what the job would entail for for applicants. In, just to understand the model in a little more detail, so is Arupe, is it a separately accredited college within the university or is it come under Loyola's accreditation? It's under Loyola University's accreditation. You know, this was the first time that um, Loyola was offering a two-year degree. And so um, the Higher Ed Commission um, visited us in January of 2015. It was a little harem scarum because we were already getting applicants uh, for the program, and they were applying to Loyola. And uh, so it was a bit of a nail biter, you know, and so we had, a, a, you know, a visiting team of three. Now, what we had going for us was um, Loyola University's very strong reputation. So there was that. That's huge. And then uh, the legwork that um, my colleagues at Loyola did in terms of preparing for that visit and then the contributions that, that I made to that. But it was still, you know, you don't know until you know kind of thing. And um uh, the visiting team arrived, and about two hours into it, one of the visitors, this professor from, a, or an associate provost, I should say, from another Midwestern university, said to me, um, can my provost talk to you in a couple of weeks? Because we might want to do something like this at, at, at my college. So I thought, okay, I think we're out of the, out of the woods here. You know, <laughs> I think there's white smoke over, you know, uh, this building <laughs> a here. Good the, sign. A good sign. Yes. So they gave us conditional approval and we were able to, um, recruit students for Arupe. You know, they could, um, they could, uh, apply directly to Arupe, but Arupe is a college at Loyola University, like the College of Arts and Sciences or the business school or the school of nursing or the school of education. It's one of, I think, 13 academic units at, at Loyola. It's under the umbrella of Loyola University. And and so in that structure, one of the differences, I think, from Arupe to the rest of Loyola is the pricing structure and what you're offering to students. So how did that work in terms of admissions, financial aid, and and given the labor intensity of the model? So, you know, 25 advisees per faculty, those services, how are you able to deliver it to the students so that they would be paying little or nothing out of pocket? That's right. Yeah. So we wanted to leverage um, two uh, important resources. One would be the um, federal and state aid. Um, so uh, Pell Grants and in Illinois, the Monetary Award Program, the MAP Grant, uh, along with um, SEOG. Um, and in addition, we were able to leverage the resources of a, a large university. So um, uh, 
uh, we had a building at uh, which we shared with the School of Social Work, and it was a building that was a block away from an NL stop, so perfect for commuters. Um, all of the back office services of the university. Um, you know, whether it's HR or well, marketing communications, the wellness center, et cetera, uh, our students benefited from. Um, so breaking it down, and we were, uh, we were a fairly lean and mean staff. Breaking it down, the cost per student was $15,500. My budget during my you know, six years as dean at um, Arupe was between $2 million and $2.5 million. 61% of my budget um, came from um, student revenue, so federal and state aid. Uh, and then for students who had expected family contributions of over $3,000, they um, contributed some tuition. The average during my time was about $1,600. Um, two-thirds of the students during my time um, did not have uh, an EFC of $3,000. We were working with um, students from very low wealth backgrounds, right? Which is what we wanted. Um, so um, I um, then began to raise funds for uh, Arupe College. Um, you know, our first gift was from the McCormick Foundation uh, and uh, for seed funding. Uh, McCormick has continued to be a very generous and consistent supporter of Arupe. Other foundations became very interested in this model and the population we wanted to work with. And then um, Chicago was very interested in this model. You know, uh, there were there were a lot of concerns about completion rates at the city colleges in Chicago. Um, a lot of folks... Um, loved the Jesuits and thought think of Jesuits as innovators. And so they saw this as another innovative educational program that the Jesuits were um, leading. And um, so there was that. There were still others who were saying, wow, you know, you're figuring out how to do this at a much reduced rate. And you're making a liberal arts education to a population that normally doesn't benefit from that. So lots of curiosity. Um, I basically had to raise $2 million a year. Um, this is not so much about me as a master fundraiser, but it just, it wasn't that difficult because there was so much support uh, from the foundation world and from um, uh, individuals in Chicago. It's really proud of this. You know, over 50% of our donors who gave to Arupe had not given to Loyola before. So we weren't cannibalizing the um, Loyola donor base, you know? Uh, so, um, Anyway, uh, that, that, that was our financial model, and uh, the goal for Arupe College was for students to graduate with little to no debt. 74% of our students report um, having zero debt when they complete their years at Arupe. The other 26% report having um, the average amount of debt is, uh, is under $1,400. So this is for 61 credits, all of which articulate um, when they go into four-year institutions. And as, as a college within Loyola, did the students, if they met a certain standard, so not just to complete the Arupe degree, but a certain, did they know that they would have admission into Loyola itself? Or was that was that not, not a part of the model? Uh, it was part of the model. There was so much interest in um, uh, from Loyola Chicago, from me, from our students to continue at Loyola. 
um, the cost of a Loyola degree is not $15,000 a year. And so um, we um, also focused our advancement efforts on raising funds for our students to continue at Loyola, those that wish to. And so, you know, I'm happy to report now that there are over 80 graduates of Arupe College in um, junior and senior years at Loyola. Um, for some students, as I said earlier, the price point of going to um, a state school was maybe more compelling. Uh, for other students, they were um, interested. This is, again, pre-COVID. Uh, that interest has diminished during the pandemic. But prior to that, interested in you know using my Jesuit Rolodex, as it were, to look at uh, going to schools elsewhere. And I'm so grateful to uh, other Jesuit universities for their generosity in terms of providing scholarships for Arupe graduates to continue at, at those institutions. But by and large, I think students begin to feel like they belong at Loyola and uh, they develop an affinity for the larger institution. And uh, and so to be able to continue there and to receive um, generous financial aid packages was also one of our goals. That's great. And it was striking that pretty early in this big experiment that you'd introduced, you'd already replicated it. So, so in 2017-18, you opened the second one of the Come to Believe, uh, the Daugherty College at, at St. Thomas. I mean, can, can you say how that came about and, and why so early in your model you were already in a position to be able to, to replicate? Do you know, someone contacted me in January 2015 from another Jesuit university said, and said, oh, we really want to do what you're doing. So I said, well, I haven't done anything yet. There are, we have no <laughs> students here. <laughs> so you might want to wait and see if this, you know, works or, or, or doesn't, you know, before you, you commit. Um, in terms of St. University of St. Thomas, um, they were also blessed and continue to be so uh, blessed by a very a visionary president in Julie Sullivan. Julie was a trustee at Loyola University of Chicago. This was, you know, I gave a presentation to the board. This was discussed on the board level. And of course, the board approved the creation of this new academic unit. And so she said, we need to do this. We need to do this in the Twin Cities in Minnesota. So um, I began sending um, my colleagues up to uh, Minnesota to sort of serve as advisors. I would talk to Julie and to her kind of project manager for this um, uh, this college that they were exploring. Um, I think the deal was sealed. Well, I mean, it was mostly so because of Julie's great zeal and um, influence, but she brought her board to visit Arupe and um, they really loved what they saw, you know? And so, um, we were meeting, I was meeting with the board. And so I said, well, where are we with this? And an influential board member said, I think we should do this. And so they all said, I, you know, we're, we're in. So that was the beginning. It's been a very nice, um, um, uh, relationship between the two institutions. Um, you know, obviously I'm more involved with St. Thomas now because of my current role. But even then, I mean, you know, the founding dean um, of, of, of their college, of Darty Family College, you know, I would say to him now, Alvin, if you want to get together for a little primal scream therapy, uh, you know, uh, uh, let's let, let's do that. And we would we would meet quarterly on the phone and kind of talk about uh, what was going on. And um, uh, and then. Their administrators would visit our administrative team and uh, lots of back and forth in terms of best practices. So, 
And was there any, you know, you, you had done this all in a, a really ambitious timeline to get it up and running. Was there any tweaking of the model as they opened or things that they chose to do a little differently from a so one of the things that I really uh, always say that St. Thomas was ahead of Loyola, and this is not any kind of blameworthy comment, it just is what it is, um, they um, focused more than we did, and part of it was a personnel issue at Rupe, but they focused more on um, the work experience for students. So even though Darty Family College and Arupe um, are, you know, very low cost tuition wise for um, uh, students. These are students that need to be working. They and their families need their income. And so Darty hired really an extraordinary um, person to coordinate and identify um employers in the Twin Cities, who again, St. Thomas, great brand recognition, uh, highly regarded in Minneapolis and St. Paul, and who said, yeah, okay, we'll take students from Doherty to intern with us and they'll be paid internships. That has been so important. And, you know, um, I just talked to the career services or the employer relations person at, at Arupe, and Arupe has made great strides, you know, in the last couple of years under her leadership particularly. Um, but um, St. Thomas had that insight and had that that key personnel person that, that Arupe just did not have in those early years. And so what was it that led you in the middle of a pandemic, summer of 2020? to decide it was time to leave Arupe and form the, the Come to Believe Network. Yeah, so I, what what happened uh, was really more about 2019 than 2020. I hired Accenture to do a replication feasibility study. Some friends of mine in California said, listen, we're not going to give to you anymore in Chicago. We, we want you to scale this, you know, and so, uh, and we'll pay for, um, Accenture to do this replication feasibility study. That was um, so validating, so confirming. Uh, the team from Accenture spent five weeks with us interviewing all stakeholders, students, alumni, faculty, staff, board members, donors, um, administrators from Loyola Chicago, um, you know, and they came out with a very rich report. Together, we identified um what we call the fit criteria, you know, what has to be in place in order for what we call a host university to launch and sustain a successful two-year college based on what we did in Chicago, based on what's going on um, in the Twin Cities of Minnesota. And so, um, you know, looking at that work and, you know, having our model validated kind of liberated me to think, all right, maybe I can, because there was this groundswell of people. I mean, I was constantly being um, asked to um, give presentations at universities around the country that were interested in the model. And so I thought, all right, you know, maybe now is the time. Um, I loved what I was doing, but I also think that sometimes it's good for institutions, for the founder not to be around forever, you know? So um, 
I announced in November of 2019 that um, I was going on my, this 501c3 for the Come to Believe uh, Network and Foundation, and I would be leaving the following summer. So then, obviously, March of 2020 um, dawns. I'll never forget that week, like all of us around the world, you know, for me, I remember writing to the faculty on Sunday night, oh gosh, uh, before the 13th of March, that was the first day when we were totally online, but the previous weekend saying, you know, part of what um, the wraparound support services provided at Arupe and at Doherty, everyone gets a laptop. So I said, um, I don't know how much longer we're going to be in person. So I said, find out who needs hotspots, because I know a lot of our students do their uh, academic work um, that requires um, um, technology here in our building because we have Wi-Fi that's reliable. So I said, so find out and I'll start getting hotspots. And so um, they did. And meantime, uh, things were developing during the course of the week. I must say, you know, this is very poignant to me um, on the um, on that Thursday when we announced that this was it. You know, students were saying to me, now, will we ever see you again? Because they knew that I was leaving that summer. And um, Arupe's model is year round. So they're fall semester, spring semester, and then two classes in the summer. So I said, oh, I'll see you soon. We'll definitely be together during the summer and we'll, you know, celebrate then and blah, blah, be healthy, take care, you know, blah, blah. Well, they were very prescient, you know. And um, and the next day we were, we were able to go online. So um, I thought, all right, now what? You know, and so some of my colleagues were saying, can you stay? <laughs> but we, a search had already begun. A really extraordinary candidate who I knew uh, had been identified. And so, um, and he was um, um, hired, uh, I'm going to say late March, early April. So there was continuity, you know, there. And so that's, that liberated me to say, okay, I can go on with this plan. You know, and so I moved back to New York uh, in August of 2020. Yeah. And in terms of, of, you know, coming out of that Accenture report, you, you set a really ambitious target for the network to add 10 institutions over five years, each serving, you know, 160 students per year. Um, how did you come up with those numbers as being viable? And how big a team do you have to do this? Because uh, that that seems like you know a pretty ambitious playbook uh, to to execute on with the maintaining the results you've had with the first two. Sure, it is ambitious. I um I guess I base that number on um the desire that I have and that um, so many other supporters of ours, friends of mine, uh, people I've met during the last several years. The desire we have to do something that's impactful. I think that um, that desire was um, fed by um, uh, the um, civil unrest and discourse um, after George Floyd, uh, that higher ed has really a responsibility and obligation to um, uh, work with, serve, accompany, and learn from uh, the students that we were working with and teaching and learning from at Arupe and at Doherty Family College. And also, quite frankly, you know, because through the years I had been approached by so many universities, um, mostly Jesuit and Catholic, because that's kind of who I am and that's my Rolodex, but also um, other non-sectarian institutions who had heard about Arupe, 
who um, recognized that they had populate commuter populations that would benefit from from um, our, our work and our model, and that they thought that they could replicate on their campuses. Then I thought, all right, um, if you extrapolate trends, um, we should be able to get uh, at least commitments. Uh, from universities to say, okay, we will begin this. Accenture identified, rather than the 10-month lead that I had, um, we've identified sort of a two-year roadmap from the moment the the president of the institution says, let's do this, to um, the moment that you enroll your first class. And there are a number of milestones along that that roadmap, uh, putting together a team that, you know, uh, uh, test driving this with local feeder schools, um, uh, beginning to think of a curriculum and working with um, the Council of Deans and with individual faculty members there, coming up with a proposal for the Board of Trustees to consider and approve, and it, you know, working through the Academic Affairs Committee of, of the Board and the Finance Committee of the Board. You know, those kinds of milestones and then, you know, hiring the founding dean, um, you know, finalizing the curriculum, beginning to recruit your first class, getting approval from the higher ed commission. Um, And um, and then, you know, interviewing applicants, um, hosting orientation, having your founding faculty in place and then welcoming your first class. So if we have. 10 um, institutions that are in some pro- some place in that process. But for me, again, given my own background and my research and my dissertation, for me, it really begins when the board says, yes, we're going to commit to this. Then that's where um, we know that we have an institution that's going forward. And, you know, we're uh, one board that we've been working with has already said yes. Um, another one, the board just met um, last month where they are, they've just heard about this from the academic leaders of, of uh, the university and they want more information. So that's where we come in. And, um, uh, and other universities around the country are considering this. You asked about my team. So again, once again, a, a blessing. Um, you know, I began with um, a former colleague, colleague of mine from um, Loyola School, Susan Kniff. Susan is the VP for Finance and um, Operations. <laughs> um, together, um, we um, have recruited other members of our team. I wanted um, input um, from Arupe um, graduates. And um, so I thought about students and alumni that I was in touch with, and I thought about particularly communications. Um, I'm really a Luddite when it comes to, you know, like this is great doing a podcast. You know, these these students are so impressed that I even know what a podcast is. Uh, and um, so uh, joining our team were two Arupe grads with uh, degrees in communications from uh, Loyola Chicago. They're the Chicago team, uh, Asia Meadows and Carlos Martinez. Um, I was just in Chicago at the beginning of this week, and they were uh, they were working with us on some projects there. They add so much value in terms of making sure that we are um, talking to communities where you know these universities are. You know, like making sure this is a community based organization and operation. Uh, also joining our team. Uh, VP for Advancement, Bill Reedy. Bill had 
been a VP for Advancement at a Catholic university in Connecticut, um, Jesuit um, uh, bred, so he knows um, a lot about uh, Jesuit education, higher education. And then finally, Sam Adams. Sam is a University of Chicago graduate um, from their School of Social Policy and Research. He had heard about our work through Paul Tuff, through James Heckman and, and Camille uh, Farrington. He was interning with us for the summer. And so I said, Sam, you know, what are you doing after the internship ends? He said, oh, I don't know. You know, my girlfriend is here and I want to stay in New York, but I'm beginning to look for jobs. So I said, stop looking. You know, uh, uh, you have a job with us as, as our education programs manager. So that's our team. You know, we have uh, four people here in New York and, and two in uh, Chicago. We're building a board uh, and um, people who are very interested in, you know, issues of access and higher education and, um, you know, supporters of the cause. Great. And and in terms of, you know, taking that leap from Arupe and uh, and to, to do this, the, the folks who had funded the initial study with Accenture, did you have some significant uh, commitments up front that said, we'll fund you uh, to, to, to scale this effort? Or is that something that, that you've had to undertake since you started? It's still a process, I'd have to say. Um, you know, that said, I mean, we are... Um, I don't want to say a comfortable uh, position because, you know, end of year giving is com- uh, is coming. And so I want people to uh, be generous if, if they can, if, if we're one of the um, organizations that they w- wish to support. Um, so we did have seed funding um, and we're building on that. What am I raising, you know, funds for? Well, first of all, we're providing thought leadership uh, and experience and support to these universities. You know, some would call that consulting. Again, I'm so influenced by Pope Francis. I, I call it accompanying. And um, I'd prefer not, you know, charging or billing, you know, or invoicing these universities for X amount of dollars per hour of consulting. So if we can subsidize our services, I don't want that to get in the way of a university um, considering the model. And so um, our funders understand that, and so they also understand that you know four of us are in New York and two are in Chicago, and you know uh, we have to pay real salaries, uh, kind of thing. So, so there's that piece. The second is um, I want to be in a position, and I'm able to do this right now with um, actually, well, I guess I could do this for two universities. I'd like to provide seed funding for a university. So let's say the board of trustees at um, your university has decided, yes, we're going to go forward with this. Um, You need to hire a founding dean. Um, That founding dean needs a full-time student recruiter, an admissions officer, and they need some administrative support. Right now, you have no student revenue. And so I don't want that to be an issue. So therefore, um, I don't like receiving restricted gifts, but I'm giving one. And it's a restricted gift, restricted to you know, use this to hire those three positions, an admin, uh, admissions person, and then, you know, first and foremost, the dean, so that there's no issue there. And, um, you know, I would be, I'd like to be an advisor to the search committee for the dean since I've been a founding dean. And then again, if I can be of service supporting that that founding dean during their first years, then um, so be it. Uh, kind of thing. So, so it's you know subsidizing um, our services and then seed funding for universities that fit our criteria. So, I mean, you know, we've said no to universities because um, 
you know, location is very important for us. And if a university doesn't have space on their campus, it's just a different model. And we've seen how important it is at St. Thomas University, at Loyola University, for students to feel like they are Tommies or Ramblers, that they are part of the larger university. They begin to see themselves as undergrads. And to do that at a satellite campus is just a different model for us. They don't get to benefit from the the services of the larger university. Then go to the library or the recplex, whatever it might be. Other uh, universities have approached us saying, oh, we love this, but we want to do this online. You know, um, I in terms of the mentoring, the relationship building, the uh, influencing, I just don't see that happening. You know, I mean, there's just so much literature now, 18 months into the uh, pandemic, of how it really hasn't worked that well for students from low-wealth backgrounds, you know. And uh, it's been a challenge for all students. But, you know, the attrition rates for uh, students who are first-gen, who are, you know, has really been very troubling. It's a crisis. So we've said, you know, um, again, not our model. And I don't want to be a purist or so rigid, you know. I mean, uh, context is really important. But we do think that there are some features to the model that are non-negotiable. And and our sense is one of the learnings from this pandemic is that some online, because all these students are also working, can be really valuable to balance things, but not not exclusively, right? Because That's then right. you're not building that sense of community. So can you, know, you say... Go ahead. So I was just going to ask if you could say a little more about those criteria that, that you came up with in determining who would be a good fit as a partner. Sure. So first of all, you need a Julie Sullivan or a Mike Garanzini, an institutional leader, a president who makes this their priority. This is going to be something that, you know, by God, we will be doing at this institution. Um, And it has to come at a time in the institution's history, and, you know, obviously institutions uh, go through cycles, where there are fewer competing priorities. So this becomes something that we're going to focus on for a few years until it's established, it's embedded as part of the larger university. Um, We look at universities that... um, have um, uh, that are financially stable. Uh, we kind of set the bar at mm, about two hundred million dollars for the endowment. That that have had fairly steady um, enrollment numbers. Um, uh, so those are the um, in, that, that that have space on campus, so uh, that they that they can incorporate this to your college as part of their their larger uh, campus. And, and does space on campus mean? That it has to have a, you you mentioned like you were part of the social work. Does it need to have a dedicated building, or or can does it simply mean you're going to treat these students the same way you treat your other students in terms of their campus experience? That's a great question. So we've talked to some universities who have said, you know, uh, how would you feel if um, students t- took some of their classes? not all in the same building, but around the campus. I think that's a great idea because it's further integration into the larger university and into the campus. What we found that has worked in both um, St. Thomas and Loyola is one place for students to congregate, to find um, their faculty, to find their deans, to find the financial aid officer, to find the uh, social workers. Um, You know, uh, 
particularly for commuters whose time is on campus is precious. So um, if there's one-stop shopping for those services, for those key people, we see that as a benefit. If they're taking classes, you know, um, in that building, okay. But if they're if they're taking classes in other buildings around the campus, that's also fine, and that could be a real benefit in terms of their growing affinity towards the larger university, and they're becoming part of, you know, um, for other students, for other faculty members, for other staff members. Oh, these are the Arupe students, or whatever the name of the two-year college is on, on, on that campus. So, but there needs to be a hub for these students to experience community and to go to for, you know, the, those really important services. So that's, um, those are part of some of the criteria. The other thing that we look at would be, um, you know, where are you located? I mean, are you in a um, an area where there is a considerable number of students who are in high school right now who will be Pell eligible? And how long will it take them to commute to your university? So we look at a, a, an hour radius. And, um, you know, if you're in an area where there aren't that many Pell eligible students, well, then, then there may not be a need for this. And this is a commuter model. Um, also, if you're in an area where there are really high-performing two-year colleges, is there a need, need for you to, to undertake a two-year college on your campus? Probably not, you know? And you can partner with that two-year college as those students complete their associate degrees to continue at your institution for their, their bachelor's. But, um, but if you're in an area where... Um, uh, and, you know, the national average for completion rates is, is 13%. So if you're in an area where, um, you know, uh, retention and completion rates are, are, are challenging, then, um, you know, this could be a really viable alternative for some students. So those are, so those are some of the characteristics we look at when we're assessing. Makes total sense. And so you mentioned you have one that's already, the board has said yes, another is considering where are you in terms of of your plan and and that growth trajectory? How many are you hoping that you'll be able to to onboard in twenty twenty two? Yeah, so we're looking for um, two schools to to go public by the end of the academic and fiscal year, um, and we have others that are you know um, uh, discerning and deciding, and we're continuing to work with. Um, we recognize that, obviously, with the pandemic, there are still so many challenges that higher ed leaders are, are facing. There's still a lot. There's still many uncertainties. The strong tailwind we have, though, is that um, so many leaders in higher ed are concerned about equity, and uh, they're interested in substantive responses uh, for uh, in terms of DEI initiatives and. Um, you know, when I talk to um, presidents or provosts, I'll say, well, here is a pretty substantive response. How about it? And, um, you know, they're, they're, they're very interested. So um, I am still, I might give myself a pass for the first year in terms of um, going through, you know, the pandemic, going through the Delta variant. But, you know, please, God, if we are turning a corner with, you know, vaccination, vaccination rates increasing uh, or learning how to, to live or control or um, live with or mitigate the uh, impact of, of, of COVID-19 on our campuses, then maybe we can go forward with some of these with some of these other commitments. That's great. Can you tell us a little about your book, uh, Come to Believe, how Jesuits are reinventing um, education again? Um how in the midst of forming Arupe and now the, the network did you find the time to write it? And uh, um, 
and what is the again part referred to? So what was the earlier reinvention? So yeah, great question. I mean, I had no business writing a book. Yeah, uh, Orbis Publishers here in New York approached me in Chicago in August of 2015, when the first cohort was beginning their classes, and they said we'd like you to write a book about starting Rupert Cup. So I said, well, it's starting right now, like this week, and they said, right, yeah, great. So this will be in real time, and so I said. You know, I mean, I barely have time to brush my teeth. I mean, I'm writing a book. And a number of people said to me, you need to do this. And so I thought, oh, God. Well, I mean, I've written more elegant emails than than much of that book. But um, I thought it was important to um, capture the experiences of my colleagues who just – I can't say enough about them uh, – and about this first cohort and, you know, what we learned – from those students during that year, how they really pioneered the model with us. So to have a record of that was really important. Um, you know, it has served as a roadmap for presidents, provosts, and others interested in the model. It's like, well, this is how they did it in Chicago, and we could tweak this or adapt that, but this resonates with, with us. Um, and then, you know, quite frankly, it was... Um, uh, um, a, a vehicle for fundraising to be able to give that to foundations, to uh, donors. It's a, a very accessible read. Come to believe is a line uh, that is repeated in uh, St. John's gospel. And, um, you know, uh, Martha says to Jesus, I've come to believe in who you are. Peter says to Jesus the same, the uh, guest, the wedding feast at Cana. For me, I've always found that very consoling. Uh, people who knew and loved and worked with and traveled with Jesus, um, it wasn't a eureka. They didn't know who he was. Uh, it was gradual. It was a process. It was a journey. I saw for our students that also, you know, higher ed wasn't a eureka moment or a given. It was a process. It was a journey. And they came to believe, like, wow, I'm really good at this. I'm really contributing to this. I really like this. I enjoy this. I want to grow in this. So they came to believe in their own power as as students, as intellectuals, as players in on a campus. And then finally, you know, um, higher ed, I think, is coming to believe in different kinds of models and including different kinds of students, you know, students who are non-traditional, students from different backgrounds. Uh, and it's uh, a journey for, for higher ed institutions as well. So that's the title. What's the again part? Yeah, so that's a little bit of Jesuit hubris. Um, but it's also, um, quite frankly, it goes back to the Lower East Side. So that nativity school that I worked at had been started in 1970, and it was a different way of doing middle school for a population that was really underserved. Nativity um, spawned over, there are over 50 nativity model schools around the country. And uh, some of them are Jesuits, some of them are Catholics, some of them are not. But working with uh, that same population, making them ready for success uh, in high school. That was in the 70s. In the 90s, Jesuits and lay women and lay men uh, collaborated for um, Cristo Rey Jesuit High School in Pilsen, an underserved neighborhood in Chicago. And this was identifying a population of students who could never afford to go to a Catholic high school, would never dream of it at a Jesuit high school, no way. Um, 
And the founders came up with this ingenious model of students working one day a week in corporate environments or not-for-profit environments, and that would offset um, the tuition costs for them to attend this school. So the first one opened in 1996. I'm a trustee there. And um, uh, there are now 37, 38 uh, Cristo Rey schools around the country. So you can see where this progression is going, elementary ed, secondary ed, higher ed. And so this is uh, the latest iteration for the Jesuits to look at a model and say, all right, how can we be more inclusive? How can we tweak it? How can we um, um, make uh, make a model more accessible? Great. And can you say it's not many leaders who've had an opportunity to be part of forming a startup within higher ed. I was fortunate. I was part of the founding faculty at the Keck Graduate Institute, the, the seventh of the Claremont Colleges. As the leader of Arupe, how, how did you divide your time? What, 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 what were, not, not in that uh, first formative year before the students, but once you had got going, you didn't have an alumni base, but you had a brand new institution, all of it. So how, 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 how did you find you were spending your days? Yeah, I um, it was a wonderful job. I love administration, um, and um, so I certainly fell in love with it even more deeply at at Arupe. Um, first of all, you know, it was sort of the the old management by walking around. So I was very visible in the building. I would visit classes. Um, uh, I think the students found me to be extremely accessible. Um, I um, would create opportunities to spend time with students, with faculty, with staff to celebrate uh, their work, their achievements, their their progress. Um, I found myself um, also interacting a lot with a larger university, um, really educating uh, my colleagues about what we were and what we were not, but also benefiting from their experience, their wisdom about, you know, what Loyola Chicago was, uh, and then also uh, benefiting from what uh, how Loyola could um, uh, uh, help the students, help me, help my colleagues, but also could learn from you know what we were doing. For example, you know we were just talking about this recently. Um, we uh, were very concerned about retention, and so some of the work that we did in retention, this was um, uh, a few years into it, um, benefited retention practices um, for for in the provost's office. So, so there's a lot of really wonderful exchange. I'm not from Chicago, you know. I didn't know much about Chicago. I love that city. It's a wonderful city, and so I got very involved civically. Um, uh, sacramentally, and I worked in a parish on weekends. I was involved in boards and the Chicago City Club. And um, uh, that was really, it was great to be able to share what Loyola University was doing, what was happening for these students, and people got it, and they really wanted to support. So I I like external work, and so I also felt that my work was to be um, a spokesperson for Arupe College and to educate Chicago publics as to what was happening and why. You know, um, part of that education also was um, to spend time – now, our admissions um, office did – 90% 90% of this work, but to spend time with other feeder schools so that they were clear about what the goals were. This is not open admission. It's not a typical community <laughs> college. So that they could direct the appropriate students who would be successful at Arupe uh, to us. You know, And that took some learning on our part as a faculty and staff and also um, you know, some educating and, and, and advertising what we do and what we're looking for to the um, secondary ed community in Chicago. 
I'm really curious in your view of what the the next decade looks like for higher ed, particularly you know the segment we've both been in for nonprofit private higher education. Had the chance to have Nathan grow on the podcast. You know his his uh, pronouncements, particularly for folks located in the Midwest or the Northeast, are are, are not encouraging. And so you know you talked about the need for new models, new ways of thinking about it. Curious what you see as likely to play out over these coming years. When I look at universities, uh, I look at um, enrollment, uh, appell- the percentage of Pell eligible uh, students who enroll, and then how many of them complete and how long it takes them to complete, and then what's the debt level. Um, Pell eligible students are not going away. You know, I mean, they, I don't see them as being part of the demographic cliff. And so if uh, Loyola Chicago, St. Thomas University, have figured out a way to create uh, a program, programs for Pell-eligible and undocumented students. And so this can be another new student population or an increase of, uh, of a population uh, on campuses. There's, a, there, there's so much support for these initiatives. There's so much of people who want to, whether they're from the business community, who are looking for um, uh, first-gen people of color with credentials from, you know, strong university brands uh, to foundations, to individuals who are really concerned about issues of equity and access and models that work um, and that have great, you know, really solid outcomes. So that has been my focus. And you know, I was talking to one university, and this is not the first time that it's gone this way, but, you know, the leader said, well, um, students who are B minus to C minus in high school, we're not we're not interested in that. You know, that would really tarnish our reputation. So I said, well, how about your reputation as being an engine for social mo- mobility? Isn't that part of, of your reputation? And at least right now, the other, you know, academic elitism is more, you know, is more of a value than, than social mobility. Um, I guess what I'm saying is that there needs to be, that's the come to believe part. If there's more of a conversion to, yes, we really are, we have relationship, we have a responsibility to be engines of social mobility, then, um, that I think that the universities will find new life and new populations and new ways of delivering uh, liberal arts uh, curriculum. What What was the greatest challenge that you faced in putting Arupe together? And how did you overcome that? I think that for a lot of it, um, we... There was such good synergy, but uh, among and between my colleagues, we were all on the same page. Uh, look, this was a startup, and in any startup, there are going to be some um, sharp elbows along the way. And um, I move quickly, um, and I, you know, I'm kind of zealot, and um, you know, I have a sense of urgency, and. Um, there were some uh, of my colleagues at the larger university who said, whoa, you're moving too quickly, or we, we don't, that's not part of who we are, or we don't do it that way. And, um, you know, I was able to find the funding, and I was able to influence the larger university to say, look, trust me, and we're having some great outcomes here. So, um, you know, let's, let's pilot this to see if this works. Um, 
no regrets, and I don't think they have regrets either. But I think that there were times when, you know, I was moving very quickly in the way that, and this is not a, um, a complaint about higher education, a model that's maybe more bureaucratic, whereas I was coming at this from a more entrepreneurial um, um, uh, frame of reference. There was a clash there, you know, and I think that that has also been, you know, some of my, um, some of the tension sometimes when I'm talking to, to university leaders, they just think, oh, you know, um, we can't do this or, well, Steve Katsouris is kind of is a, a unicorn, a, a one of a kind maverick uh, kind of person. I don't think that's true. I mean, I didn't, I, I, I haven't never been part of the day to day at Darty Family College and they've enjoyed great success. So I do think that there is a little bit of the the culture of what's or always been at a university versus seizing opportunity uh, and an entrepreneurial spirit in terms of let's address an issue right now. I mean, when I think about you're moving too quickly and uh, I think of that first class, the, the my colleagues who are our communications managers um, were members of that first class. Had we not moved quickly enough, I wouldn't know them. They wouldn't be influencing my work now. Uh, we would really be less than because they're, they're not part of our team. So, I mean, it's that granular, but I think that makes sense to a lot of people. So just a, a final question. As you think about advice you would give to people who are either thinking about being a college president or potentially doing what you did and pioneering a new model of higher education, what, 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 what would you say to them? So in terms of this work, um, again, I'm going to refer to scripture. So Martha and Mary, um, friends of Jesus and in, in the gospel story in Luke's gospel, um, Mary sat at Jesus's feet and Martha was the hostess. And Martha was angry because Mary was not helping with, you know, hosting this event. And, um, you know, it's being with or doing for. The model is not about doing for. I mean, it really isn't. It's about being with. And if you are accompanying these students, you know, I had a terrible story. I had a, a, a potential funder um, when we were doing the mission statement. Um, uh, he said, you know, we don't have any language in the mission statement about how we're saving the students. And I said, we're what? And he said, you know, we're, how we're, we're saving the students. We're fixing them. We're saving them. And I was aghast, and I thought, how will I get out of this? So this fellow is very religious, and so I said, well, you know, um, Christians believe that Jesus saves. That's a big job. So let's let Jesus have that job. <laughs> and why don't we look at our role as we're accompanying these students during their first post-secondary ed experience? And... Um, you know, he eventually gravitated away from me because he was interested in saving. Well, okay, but you know, we don't. It, it's about being with. It's not about doing for. So that's that's critical for this model because you learn so much from the students, from their perspective, from their experience. And as far as college presidents go, uh, whether it's this or other models, um, look, people are looking at um, higher ed leadership. Uh, and whether their commitment to DEI is performative or substantive. And a year and change after George Floyd, you know, there are some um, skeptics saying, well, you know, your statements in the summer of 2020 were stirring and inspiring and you expressed solidarity. Now what? 
you know and so uh, for me i'm always well what's the substantive what's the um what can we really hang our our hats on in terms of something that's transformative for students but that's also transformative for your campus great well and i think steve um i i want to thank you for being with us during this time. It, it's been great to get to know you. And and I love from the early part of the interview, I love the idea that one of the models of successful higher ed is the Greek restaurant, right? As, as a place of building community. So thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. It's, it's been great to have a chance to get to know you. As my father would say, it is our pleasure to serve you. Listen, David, great talking with you. Thanks so much again for inviting me to, to this conversation.